It's Stephen Henderson. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about the near record low number of homicides Detroit is on pace to record this year. The first time in nearly 60 years they have been that low. Why are they going down and why are they going down along with other violent crime? We're going to talk with a representative of the Detroit Police Department about the things that they're doing that they would say are pushing the homicide number down. And then we're going to talk with a criminologist about the national picture, how Detroit compares to other communities and what they're experiencing in terms of the number of homicides and violent crime. But first, we want to hear from someone at the heart of the efforts locally. And so we're joined by Detroit Detroit Police Assistant Chief Charles Fitzgerald to learn a little more about the department's perspective on this issue. Assistant Chief Fitzgerald, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So let's start here. Uh, What would you say is the explanation for this declining homicide and declining overall violent crime uh, numbers here in in the city of Detroit? Yeah, I think it's a combination of a lot of different things. Uh, And obviously it starts with uh, this incredible partnership that uh, Mayor Duggan and uh, County Executive Evans formed. Uh, Working on the backlog is huge. I don't think people understand that when, when, when you're arrested for something and it just sits, and you just sit. And uh, during the COVID times, there were no bonds. There were there, people were released on personal bond. The folks were out doing what they did, to, got them in trouble the first time. So working on that backlog was huge, huge for us. Um, but on top of that, it's just that everything we do at DPD has a multi-layered approach, everything. Mm-hmm. We don't just have one strategy, we have multiple strategies and I could very easily list them off for you. Um, and it's every little thing, every little part does its own part to to help. It's a, uh, simple things. Uh, every Wednesday during the summer, spring and summer into fall, the chief does walk a mile Wednesday. It, it's not for his exercise. It's not for us to get out and walk around. It's to get out and actually meet the community hmm. up close and personal to 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 hear their complaints, hear their the, the things that are going on in their communities so that we can address immediately instead of it festering and, and getting worse. Yeah. So so uh, there is a lot of talk in Detroit and other places about this idea of community policing, what that means, what that looks like. Uh, what you were just talking about, this, this Walk-A-Mile Wednesday is an example. I, I, I also want to ask, though, about, um, uh, I guess, the connective, I guess, approach to, to, to things like violent crime. In other words, a homicide is the end stage, I think, act of a lot of other things that happen before it. Uh, and I know that in in the police department uh, in this city, you're really focused on kind of interrupting that sequence so that we never get to that to that end stage. Uh, can you talk more about what that looks like in Detroit? Yeah, this year we went on a year-long crime strategy. In years past, and, and, and I've been on the, uh, the department now for over 29 years, we our strategy changes. It, it goes here and, it goes, and it's like we're chasing these shiny red balls all over the place. But this year we stuck with a very specific uh, uh, strategy, and it was to re- reduce gun violence in our top 20 scout car areas across the city. You know, over 143 square miles, uh, we picked our top areas that are historically had high gun violence. And it's 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 being very unapologetic for taking guns off the street, focusing on guns. Guns are at the root of our robberies. They're at the root of our shootings, our carjackings, our homicides. Uh, 
And again, like the chief, the chief has said over and over again, just very unapologetic for taking illegal guns off the street. And it's not just focused there. It's focused on uh, hitting more narcotic, the illegal narcotic locations because there are guns inside those locations. So it's this, again, it's this layered approach, layered approach that as of this morning, we've had 185 fewer people shot in the city of Detroit hmm. between homicides and uh, non-fatals. And let's face it, non-fatals are nothing more than a, a failed homicide attempt. Right, right. Um, can you talk a little more about the Gun Violence Reduction uh, Coalition, sort of how it came together and how that uh, has had such an effect in a short period of time? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, again, it was Mayor Duggan and County Evans, uh, uh, County Executive Evans, that uh, proposed this plan. And it took not just the courts at 36th District and Third Circuit to work on this. We also uh, worked with the, the juvenile courts to work through the system for the, the youth that have been out and about. That uh, you know, the, you've seen the stories. They don't have enough bed space for the more egregious of the juveniles. Uh, um, Prosecutor Worthy has just been amazing and on board right from the get-go. She is working very, very hard to get us, uh, our, our community prosecutors, back in the precincts. We had them once before. It was an amazing partnership, uh, and she has uh, committed to getting us three as soon as she possibly can so that we can get the most violent precincts. And I say the most violent. Historically, it's 8th, 9th precinct, um, 12th precinct, 2nd precinct. They're all right in that same area for the 3rd the and 4th most. But it's, it's, it's her dedication in helping us with that that uh, we get those gun prosecutors back in. We can get cases uh, pushed along much quicker, easier, reviewed quicker. Uh, the Michigan Department of Corrections has been an outstanding partner uh, with with bed checks. We've been uh, we've set goals for how many beds we want to, I mean, houses we want to go to, to make sure the folks are out on probation, parole, or are, are living up to their end of their obligation. Um, Wayne County Sheriff, uh, this amazing partnership, and you had mentioned it in your intro about uh, our future of apprehension team, mm -hmm. our FAST team has, uh, and their main focus is uh, dangerous felons and it's, it's weapon related felons. And this year alone, they are creeping up on uh, almost a thousand individuals that have been taken into custody, which is a 24% increase over last year. So all of these things, again, it's just this layered approach that's really, really helped us uh, see the, the numbers we've seen this yeah, year. Yeah. Uh, we're talking with Detroit Police Department Assistant Chief Charles Fitzgerald. Uh, we're talking about the uh, amazing, really, uh, reduction in homicides that uh, we are experiencing right now in Detroit. Uh, we're on pace to perhaps have the lowest number of homicides in the city in 60 years or nearly 60 years. Uh, we would love to hear from you during the conversation as well. A little later, we're going to talk about how this reduction in homicides here kind of fits into a national picture of homicide and violent crime uh, going down. Talk about why those things uh, are happening. Uh, we would love to hear from you about what you think about what's going on here. What do you believe is behind the falling number of homicides and violent crimes in Detroit, uh, especially if you live here? Uh, give us a sense of what's going on in your community, in your neighborhood how are you experiencing this? Uh, have you noticed that there is less violent crime uh, than there than there has been in in recent years? Uh, also, give us a sense of uh, what you think we need to do to push it down even more, reduce even further the number of. Uh, people who are killed in our city. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we can include you in the conversation 
that way. Uh, Assistant Chief Fitzgerald, I want to talk a little about the community role in all of this. Uh, We've been talking recently in Detroit about how to bolster the role of community groups in in policing efforts, uh, but but that's not new. We've we've had lots of community uh, activity for a long time in our city in a number of different uh, places. I wonder what role you think that's playing in in these reductions. Oh, I think it's uh, t- playing a, a, a huge role. Uh, I mean, truthfully, everything starts uh, at the home in the community and. Um, you're absolutely right. We've had community groups forever, neighborhood uh, watch, uh, uh, radio patrols. Um, I think, and, and this, this is just my personal opinion, I think that what's happening and I'm seeing, and I saw it really beginning 20, end of 2021 in, in the last year, we're seeing more and more individuals that want to start these groups. And I think that has to do with more of a trust in their 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 police department. And, and I think it's, um, you know, listen, it, We've said many, many times the, the, the police are a very small part in keeping a community safe. I mean, we can respond to police runs. We're very reactive at times. Uh, I think DPD tends to be a lot more proactive, but we're still react. We're a reactive department. We we respond to police runs. That's our number one priority. Mm-hmm. Try to get there as quickly and safely as possible. But you see it more and more now. And, I, and I'll tell you, it, you know, in in, in law enforcement and, and just general public safety is that there's a shared responsibility. And I think what's happening now is that I think we're getting it. I mean, like I say shared responsibility. We tell police, I tell them all the time, police officers, when you, you know, you, you do what you signed up for, you serve and protect. We want eight hours of work for eight hours of pay. Mm-hmm. And it's like in the community, it's the same thing. We you can say it to parents, do what you signed up for, be a parent, make sure your kids are held accountable. Don't leave weapons, uh, loaded weapons out where kids can easily access them. Uh, make sure your friends, family, and, and neighbors understand the consequences of their actions, all these things. And when you see something, say something. And we're getting a lot more response to that, which, again, leads back to, I think there's more of a trust in the police department. You know, it, it, for years, the police, listen, we make mistakes. We make mistakes like everyone else. Hmm. But yeah. 99% of the police department are doing exactly what we asked for them. They came on this job for a reason, and that is what they're doing. So, um uh, I'm, we're seeing a lot more. Uh, we're seeing more in our, our higher closure rate because we're getting folks that are coming forward and putting their trust in the police department. Uh, and we're not going to we'll do everything we can not to uh, to uh, sway that trust at all. Yeah. Yeah. Let's start today with uh, Mike in Almont. Mike, welcome to, to the show. Hey, good morning. A quick question for the chief. Um, as you operate um, the, the department, and you're obviously constrained by budgets. I'm wondering if there's any opportunities for grants or some incentivization of your income to support a gun buyback program. Hmm. That's my question. Yeah, uh, great, great question. Uh, Chief, what's the answer to that? Do those, are, are we doing those kind of programs, and do they work? Yeah, excellent, excellent question, Mike. Um, you know, we haven't we haven't had one in a while. There are, there are a lot of studies out there that show that the gun buyback just simply doesn't work. We tend to get uh, a folks that turn in old guns that don't work, folks that don't want to. We're not getting the guns from the people on the street that are trying to rob you. We're not getting guns from the dope houses. We're not getting those guns. Um, so we do it. We take sometimes guns that Mr. and Mrs. Smith could very easily use to protect themselves. Um, so it's it, it, in my in, in according to other studies, a lot of studies, it's they just don't work. So we haven't done too many of those. Hmm. Um, you know, our biggest thing is what we've been doing a lot of, and we're pushing it very heavily is our gun lock program. We we're, we push out gun locks as 
as much as we possibly can. We will deliver them to your house if needed. I have been to too many this year alone of, of young children that have been shot. Yeah. Some have been shot and killed just for the for irresponsible parenting, guardianship, that kind of thing. We're, we're leaving guns laying around and getting in the hands of uh, young children. So those are our biggest uh, uh, priorities at this point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Chief, I wonder if you can talk just a little about what is, I guess, ahead. Uh, if we if we close the year the way we think we're going to close the year and we hit this milestone, I guess, what's next? How do we push it even further? Uh, you know, as I pointed out, the last time we were at this number, there were a lot more Detroiters. So in terms of the rate, we're still way higher than we should be. Um, is it just a matter of uh, persevering with the things that uh, that you're already doing? Or are there other things that we need to add to the portfolio? No, we're pretty excited about a couple of new initiatives we're going to start in 2024. Not going to talk about them at this point, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're going to continue doing what we've been doing and we're with a heavy emphasis. Like this year, it's like we're not celebrating by any means, Stephen. You have to understand that. I mean, we're just excited because we met our goal. Mm-hmm. You know, we every year we asked 10%, 10%. Let's move it down 10 more percent. Uh, uh, and we offer up as many services as we can. You know, we've got things like Operation Ceasefire. It's not just heavy enforcement led. It's 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 a promise operation. And the promise is, listen, put your guns down, get out of that element, and we will help in any way we can with jobs, with we can clear up your driver's license, we can get we can assist take care of warrants. So even have tattoo removal if you were once in a group or a gang and we, we, our biggest mission and anything we do at DPD is just changing behavior. So that's what our focus is going to be. It's going to be heavy in 2024. I hope to get maybe a couple of days uh, rest in between before <laughs> the new year. <laughs> it's been a very long year. But uh, then we hit the ground running in, in January and with another goal of we want another 10%. Mm. And I think we can do it with, with the community's help. You know, we talk about there was, yeah, 1.5 million people uh, back in the uh, late 60s, but we had probably 5,000 police officers too. We're, right now we're struggling at about 2,600. We'd yeah. love to have more. Um, so yeah, we, we it's that constant battle, but it's the same things and I can I can run through all kinds of different things that we did this year that we will continue to do and we will enhance. And the biggest thing for us, Stephen, it's, it's just accountability. The accountability factor nowadays is just tremendous. We have weekly meetings uh, with our command staff. We have daily meetings with our chief, which sometimes are not very pleasant. He has uh, very high demands and he has an expectation. Mm-hmm. So uh, we meet bi-weekly with our mayor, which I've in my 29 years, I, I never met with a mayor until Mayor Duggan came in. And it used to be weekly, now it's bi-weekly. I'm hoping maybe that's because he has a little bit of confidence in us now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, but they have, they have this expectation and they are both the chief and the mayor are brilliant. You cannot, you know, we've had command officers before that could come in and, and kind of tap dance their way through something. It does not work with this, this, the mayor and the chief. So that accountability is huge as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Assistant Chief Charles Fitzgerald. Uh, again, congrats on the on the numbers. I I think it's a huge milestone to reach. And uh, of course, thanks for for joining us here on Detroit today. No, anytime. Thank you for having me. Happy holidays to you too. Stay where you are. We'll be right back with more Detroit today. We're talking about near record numbers uh, reduction 
in the homicides here in the city of Detroit that were reported recently and what might be behind those numbers. Certainly, policing plays a role in violent crime overall and in the number of homicides a community might experience. But I think there's a real question about how much role policing plays. Lots of other things go into the mix. And in particular, when you see a dramatic reduction like we have here in the city of Detroit this year, uh, nearly 18 percent, I I think you're talking about uh, a much more complicated uh, picture and a much more complicated dynamic. To get deeper into those questions and to put them in a little more of a national context, we're joined now by Ernesto Lopez. He is a research specialist with the Council on Criminal Justice. Uh, Ernesto, welcome to Detroit Today. I thank you for having me. Yeah. So we have, were just talking with uh, an assistant chief here in Detroit about homicide and violent crime statistics here. But let's start with you talking about what your research says is happening nationwide. Uh, are, are we seeing similar drops in violent crime in other communities that we're experiencing here? Um, generally, yes. What we find in our research when we compare the first six months of 2023 compared to the first six months of uh, 2019, we do find that homicide is decreasing. It's not decreasing uniformly across multiple cities. Um, excuse me, it's not decreasing uniformly, but it is decreasing across multiple cities. Um, but it is still elevated uh, compared to 2019. Now, it's, it's important to, to note that, you know, from 2019 to 2020, there is a historic homicide increase. Uh, and what we really focus on in our research is that change from 2020 and the, uh, you know, exploring how it changed over the course of the pandemic and uh, the murder of George Floyd and resulting social unrest. So I, I do want to go back to 2020 and the increases we experienced in many urban cities uh, then there were a lot of there were a lot of discussions about why that happened. Um, uh, policing, I think, changed during the pandemic for sure. Uh, there was there was accusation that policing uh, took took a less serious approach to dealing with violent crime for a time during the pandemic in some cities. Uh, that explained uh, the increase. But but set the stage for us a little more about what. What happened, and I guess what we were left with uh, when the pandemic was over? Sure. Um, <clears throat> I think as part of that stage setting, it's really important to put 2020 a little bit more context in regards to the homicide trends, right? First, homicide was at its lowest rate in 2014, since at least 1960, and possibly even back to World War II. Our data gets, um, uh, you know, there's some questions about the data between that time, but it looks like that and you know we're fairly confident that that could be the case. Now, from 2014 to 2016, there was an increase in homicide by 28 percent. Um, and I'm going through this sort of preamble because there's some evidence uh, to suggest that really, it you know when we look at 2020, it, the increase it's really a continuation, even a shift from the homicide increases we see in 2015 and, and 2016. Mm-hmm. So it's important to to put that into some context. And even when we talk about reductions from 2023 or even going forward, 
that if we're back at pre-pandemic levels, we're still higher than we were in the last, you know, 10 years or so. So that, that's some, some important context. Uh, when it comes to policing and the effects of policing specifically, it's really difficult to parse out because when you look at the data, you know, uh, uh, there's there's two main concerns when it comes to policing. One is de-policing, police pulling back from, uh, you know, pursuing maybe low-level crime or even more serious crime, interactions with police, and also police trust, police legitimacy. Mm -hmm. We do see a decrease in police activity at the onset of the pandemic, just like we see a decrease in overall social activity. So that, that complicates the picture even more. Um, what we don't find is really at the onset of the pandemic, uh, a major increase in uh, homicide. So that, that kind of raises some questions about just as a raw number, police interactions with folks, um, how, how much does that explain of the homicide increase? Now, it's possible that there, there, there was another, we do know from some cities that there was another decrease um, shortly after the murder of George Floyd. Uh, we also don't know the quality of those interactions, maybe how they have changed. I also mentioned police trust. There's a lot of uh, fairly strong research, not necessarily related to 2020, but before uh, large body research that finds that when people trust government, trust police, that tends to um, impact crime. So higher trust, less crime, essentially, even violent crime. The problem is that that de-policing and trust, uh, de possibly decreased trust, occurred exactly at the same time, exactly at the same moments. So identifying what is contributing to homicide makes it extremely difficult. And the current research that's out there um, is, you know, getting is getting better, but we don't have the best measures. Our research isn't really, our body research isn't really designed to measure changes in police trust so rapidly at such a massive scale. So we're really limited in what we can measure. Yeah, yeah. Um, when we think about um, uh, things like we're seeing here in Detroit uh, right now, uh, you know, the tendency, of course, is to react by uh, talking about the police. And that happens no matter what the trend is. If, for instance, we had seen the highest number of homicides in Detroit in nearly 60 years, the questions would all be directed toward the police. Why, why is this happening? What are you doing that um, that is either causing this or not preventing it from, from happening. And so, of course, when we get to a near 60-year low, the discussion is also about the police and policing. What are you doing uh, that, that may have an effect on this? But, but I, I also want to talk about the other things, the other factors that, um, that have something to do with, with homicide. And as you say, it's very hard to parse it out and, and determine how much role anything plays. But I want to talk about what some of the other things are that we know either send homicide rates up or down uh, and, and how they correlate with other violent crimes. I mean, <clears throat> one of the things that's really interesting about the homicide reduction here in Detroit is that it coincides with an overall reduction in, in violent crime as well. So it suggests that it's not maybe a fluke, that, that there is something going on that's changing the way 
that, that that we interact with each other in the in the city. So I, I want to have you talk just a little about about those other factors, what they what they look like, and how we leverage them, I guess, to 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 do to do more, to go further and reduce crime even more. Yeah, I think those are, are really important questions, but I think it's also equally, if not even more important, to, to put the, the numbers into a, a broader context. Mm-hmm. That when we look at what's going on in the Detroit and many other cities, um, the homicide count is lower in Detroit and is notably lower. However, when we look at the homicide rate, yes. once we control for population change, yeah. Um, it's it's tough to say what's going to happen in December, but if we assume December is similar to other months in the year, if we assume it's a little lower because there tends to be lower levels of homicide in the winter, but uh, the the actual rate of homicide in Detroit hasn't changed much since the 2010s. Um, it's and again that's not the count. The count is continuing to go down, but uh, Detroit, cities like Detroit, um, Baltimore, St. Louis a lot of these cities struggle with relatively high homicide rates and have been stuck sort of at these you know 2000 levels um and there's a lot of concern uh with researchers and other folks with you know disinvestment and losing population and what does that do to a city so while the number is lower the rate hasn't seen much change there's there's definitely variation across year Mm -hmm. but overall it's still it's sort of stagnant um, and it would be great to see that, you know, not just Detroit, but these other cities do continue the downward trend from 20, you know, they are seeing from 2022, uh, most likely through 2023, a decrease. And hopefully that that trend continues. But to your point about the factors, I think it's important to make two distinctions between long term and short term factors. What we've seen in 2020 uh, that increase of about 30% from 2018 to 2020 across the U.S. is is not likely a result of is not likely the same factors that we've seen um, in the or at least not the same scale that we've seen in uh, the homicide increases from the 1970s to the early 90s. So there's a lot of research on that, uh, and you know. Criminologists still can't decide of what it is. It's likely a combination of, of different factors. It's likely a combination of different things happening at different times. Um, for instance, it, there's a, you know, that the homicide increase beginning in the 70s could be just the result of the baby boom uh, and and a larger share of individuals getting to that prime uh, violent crime age of late teens, early adult, mm-hmm. mid adult ages. Mm-hmm. Now that dissipates as people uh, you know get older, but then you have the emergence of of uh, widespread you know crack and drug markets. Now and then the research on that's sort of mixed: increased firearms, changes in policing. There's all sorts of things, uh, large scale. Now when we look at the most recent change, the the big question is, um, what did either the murder of George Floyd or more me more um, specifically the pandemic, how did that affect our daily lives? And the research generally does not support the pandemic having a direct effect on homicide. And I really want to emphasize that the way we measure that is extremely limited. Mm-hmm. Um, it's either looking at from when lockdown started until um, you know, a certain point, uh, like looking at weeks, like 
the lockdown started, you know, March 16th and it lasted 10 weeks or something. That's how we've measured it or people staying at home. But we also know that there were increases uh, eventually over time, so we can't measure it directly. So it's it's quite possible that, you know, the pandemic could have influenced people at the most risk. And when we look at a lot of social changes, um, decrease the access to service, decrease the social supports, people who are sort of on the margins, who, you know, may not offend, may not commit a homicide, those people tend to be at most risk. So it, there's a good chance that um, those people could have been greatly affected by the change in, in activity, the reduction of support, mm-hmm. the reduction of in-person contact, but we're just not capturing that in our data, at least not yet. And and the um, you know the the, the drivers uh, that are I guess outside the purview of policing um, uh, the, the the societal changes or the the sort of cultural inflections that 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 lead to increases and decreases in homicide uh, are are we seeing a change there? Uh, that that explains some of that as well. Yeah, it's, it's hard to say with the, the cultural side of things. Um, you know, there's been one, uh, some conversation about the role of like maybe social media, mm-hmm. um, and you know, there's not good research on that. Again, it's hard to measure. However, um, per, you know, when I think of a violent crime and a violent incident, particularly a homicide, the best predictor is how close people are to one another, right? Mm-hmm. You, you you can't kill someone from across the city. Um, and, you know, while, uh, you know, there's an increased chance of, you know, beef or a larger, you know, group of peers, you know, seeing the, these messages on, you know, various social media platforms and living on there for a while, those individuals are still not in proximity to one another. They're still separated. So I think while there's, an argument that can be made um, why it could increase and why it could have factors, and there's definitely antidotes of it occurring, these are still, you know, there's there we don't have that counterfactual. We don't have, yeah, but what if they were together, right? Right. It's not like there's tagging from, from one, you know, gang or crew, and then, you know, it's being covered up by another, and then there's that interaction. Um, Right, that that they're not in proximity to one another. So we have when we think of these you know larger social changes again with social media, that's a big, big question of, you know the antidotes are there and that could be the case, but what's it replacing, right? Are we moving from a street corner from an alleyway to online? Yeah, it's also important to consider, uh, and and this gets at with these social factors. One thing that concerns me is not the immediate but what's what's around the corner what's going to happen in the next one two three five years from now and we look at like school attendance school attendance is not back to pre-pandemic levels Hmm. and and school has so many advantages aside from just you know learning basic skills and being you know being able to get a good job those sorts of things it's also a pro-social environment with peers yeah it's you're in school. If you're in school, you're most likely not getting into other trouble. You're not um, getting into other small deviant acts that then allow these youth to become ensnared in the criminal justice system and start towards a criminal trajectory. So we have to be aware of what's going on now, but also future implications 
of the pandemic, social unrest, and just the changing social structure. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Ernesto, I want to talk with you about uh, community response to crime. One of the things that is has always been true here in Detroit is that there have been uh, tremendous efforts on the part of people who just live here and are part of the community to to organize around the idea of lowering crime and especially lowering uh, violent crime. Um, What role does that actually play in? things like homicide rates and rates of, of violent crime. And are we seeing a difference in communities across the country, I guess, uh, with regard to that community activism, how frequent it is and how effective uh, it might be? Yeah, so the role of community is, is extremely important when we think of, <clears throat> excuse me, when we think of violent crime, especially homicide. And there's sort of direct impacts and indirect impacts. And what we know from the research is that when a community is sort of bonded together, that that increases community trust, social cohesion, reporting to police. Um, you know, un- unfortunately, there's not the strongest um, maybe relationship when it comes to that di- that direct, like informal um, relationship with with crime. But there is increased reporting, and again, more social trust. Um, that you know, that if there's trusted community members, they can resolve conflicts on their own before they turn violent. So that that's one part of it. The other is a little bit more, is more formal, that when there are uh, formal violent reduction strategies, the one I'm most uh, familiar with is this uh, general strategy called focused deterrence. And that's a blend between um, sort of community members, um, survivors of violent crime, directed directly impacted folks. So you know, maybe a mother who has a son who's incarcerated for homicide, um, bringing those folks together with police and to deliver uh, and to identify, or really through law enforcement, identifying individuals who are at the most highest risk of violence and delivering a message of both from the uh, from the police of deterrence, like we will capture you, you will be arrested, you will serve time in prison, to community impact of the harm done to the overall community and also very individualized impacts, again, from those survivors and those directly impacted. Um, cities do all sorts of different strategies. Uh, and, you know, when we think of, you know, com- the role of community, it's really important for, you know, it just it just can't be just the police. It has to be police and community. And really that first step is identifying the problem of, of where homicides are, you know, are they most, I mean, they're mostly going to be gun related, but are they gang related? Are they drug related? and really um, finding out where and really involving folks. Hmm. So I think those are some of the key steps. So so I also want to talk about the, um, uh, you know, the effect of uh, high profile, I guess, murders or, or, or uh, murders that occur out of the ordinary. Uh, on on people's sensibilities about crime and and homicide, and I, the reason I bring that up is because here in the city of Detroit, there were at least two 
homicides this year that I think surprised people because of the people who were involved, uh, the neighborhoods where they happened. Uh, one um, in particular uh, was a young woman who was deeply involved in a, in a uh, synagogue here in Detroit who was murdered in her home late at night uh, in, in a neighborhood where things like that just don't happen. Uh, Sam Wall uh, is someone that lots of us knew and, and were just shocked to hear about her murder. Police have finally arrested someone who they say uh, did this. But the way in which uh, that kind of event shapes the way we feel about safety and about uh, uh, policing and homicide. I mean, I think, uh, you know, when you think about uh, other cities as well, the, the, the way in which those kinds of things play into the way that we react to these things. I think uh, it, it, it's worth thinking about that and, and trying to, I guess, figure out how to keep perspective. It's such a contrast, this news about uh, murders being at a near 60-year low while we've got uh, these, these uh, other kind of high-profile things happening. Yeah, I think I think your your term is correct with sensibilities that, you know, um, unfortunately, those events happen uh, in, in places you wouldn't expect. But equally unfortunate is that those events happen in places you do expect it. And, you know, I think, as a, you know, we shouldn't, uh, you know, as a researcher and, and I would just argue just even it's just, you know, a human being, we shouldn't place more value on someone's life if it occurs in a place you wouldn't expect it versus where it does happen uh quite frequently and you know hopeful if there's any good that comes from from anything like that that it, it brings attention to you know the issues of, of crime for people who don't think about it and don't realize that for some communities especially in very concentrated areas that it's a daily concern uh shootings happen quite frequently where an old neighborhood i used to live in there's helicopters every night I lived close to Disneyland, so I couldn't tell if there were gunshots or, or fireworks. And mm. I didn't live in a, a nice part away from Disneyland. So, you know, it's a really it's a really valid concern. But again, we shouldn't, you know, uh, place value on someone's life just because we wouldn't have expected it to happen. Yeah. You know, these are all victims. These are all people who are directly impacted. But, you know, it also at the same time, it all, we also should keep in perspective that if something like that occurs in, in an area you wouldn't typically see, it doesn't mean homicide is necessarily out of control. Um, so we have to have that balance between realizing it's a problem, especially for some people who are at greater risk, but also at the same time having some perspective of the numbers and the overall trends. Right, right. Um, I also want to end talking about uh, the future and what we should be thinking about, what we should be doing to continue this trend, this new trend of the decline of the number of homicides and the decline in the number of violent crimes uh, each year. And and what, I guess, barriers or challenges you think stand kind of in our way? Uh, uh, how much control do we even have over whether these trends continue and we continue to live in a safer society you know, i think there are some things we can't control or are extremely difficult to control right so i talked about changes in age composition that's probably not going to be uh, a major factor coming up uh, but there are some things we we can control 
um, you know, when we think of, you know, there's some research that shows that some of the homicide increases have been localized in, in drug markets. And um, I think that's something that should be prioritized and could be controlled. It doesn't necessarily mean that there needs to be, you know, stop frisks and arrests for in heavy drug markets, but providing other alternatives, other social services, um, and really having a very data informed approach and also realizing that progress is incremental and um you know and again the stress that you know each city may experience trends differently and while there may be an underlying national trend um, we still see variation and within those cities that are experiencing high rates of, of violent crime particularly homicide to to you know have a good sense of who's doing it where it's occurring um, involving community members, there tends to be a lot of discourse about like, oh, it's either social workers, mental health workers, or police, right? Or mm -hmm. community violence interrupters or police. It has to be both. You know, at the Council on Criminal Justice, we had a violent crime working group that deeply explored these issues. And uh, recently, the Department of Justice has adopted this model that we've developed, um, you know, as a roadmap to success for communities. So, you know, we, we encourage law enforcement and local and other community groups to look at those resources and to develop strategies and to see what they can do it's possible um even something simple as just you know repairing dilapidated buildings they call it like cleaning and greening strategies mm -hmm, mm -hmm. while those at times can have diminishing returns once you stop a homicide you you reduce the probability of future homicides so many homicides are retaliatory and so if we can stop a homicide Today, there's a good chance you're stopping one tomorrow. Yeah, um, and I would love to get your prognosis, I guess, uh, out of this as well. Do you think we're in a time period where we're going to continue to see declines in violent crime and homicide, or is this perhaps episodic and and about particular circumstances? I mean, is there something bigger going on uh, that that we should be taking note of and maybe even looking forward to in terms of uh, the rates and 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 the direction uh, of these of these dynamics. I'm mixed because when we look at the earlier the data from 2020, the first two months of 2020 um, were about 25% higher in homicide compared to 2019. And that's before the pandemic before the murder of George Floyd. Now those events, especially the murder of George Floyd may have exacerbated those trends. I believe that we will be lower than 2020, um, but I still question where we're going to sort of, you know, flatten out at. I don't have much confidence that we are going to get back to those 2014 historic lows. Um, we're most likely going to end up somewhere around 2018, 2019 rates, um, which again, those are still, that's still thousands of lives lost. And even if we come back to those pre-pandemic levels, we still have to remain vigilant, still have to work on uh, relationships with police and community and identifying you know, practices that work and implementing those practices. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Ernesto Lopez uh, uh, of the Council on Criminal Justice. It was really great to have you here to talk about uh, these crime trends. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you for having me.
Today's episode of Detroit Today was produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Our technical director and engineer is Nate Bender. Our assistant producer is Maddie Boyer. Editing and mixing is by Connor Anderson. Our music is by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. Our podcast manager is David Lyons, and our program director is Adam Fox. Detroit Today is a production of WDET Public Radio. If you love the conversations we have on Detroit Today, consider donating to WDET, the public radio station in Detroit that we call home. If you want to be a part of the conversation and call in, you can listen live every day on WDET.org or on the WDET mobile app. Or if you live in Southeast Michigan and still love listening to good old-fashioned radio like me, tune in to 1019 FM.